be seated. Perfection doesn't exist. But that's not quite true. Can't you see? There is one planet where every element has fallen into place perfectly. Planet Earth. Can't you see? From volcanoes to weather systems. Ocean currents to the heat of the sun, these forces allowed life on Earth to flourish. how these diverse forces work together to keep our planet in perfect balance. So this morning you get a bit of Mangione mayhem. Uh, my name is Danny Mangione, that was my sister Jojo, uh, Joanna, either way. Um, <clears throat> but as Jeremy Franchino so uh, correctly pointed out, as a substitute teacher this Sunday with uh, Justin and Ross being gone, yes, I'm going to show a video, i got to suck up some time. Um, I, uh, I know that we are judged for the things that we do and the things that we say, so I'm going to keep this as brief as possible. But this morning we get to look at Psalm 145 as we are going through the Psalms of Praise. And <clears throat> I wanted to share this video with you. Um, this is a documentary, I don't know for those of you who are familiar with David Attenborough and his documentaries, uh, but we can't get enough of his voice paired with all, these footage, all this footage of planet Earth. His documentaries truly are remarkable. He has done countless documentaries and has been a broadcaster uh, since 1951. That's now 70 years. It's been a long time since he's been around. And he's made much of his effort to bring better awareness uh, of how this world works, what this world needs, and what part each species has to play in it. But what's remarkable to me is after 70 years of being involved in natural history or being a, a part of it and, and an advocate for it, um, Attenborough considers himself an agnostic, arguing that nothing is known or can be known of the existence or nature of God. It's not that he's ruled God out completely, but for now he sticks with the line in the clip that we just heard that there is one place where every element has fallen into place perfectly. And as similar as David and I are with our soothing but captivating voices and our rugged good looks and our really good accents, this is, this is where we differ. 
This is where we step to different sides of the coin. You see, Attenborough has encouraged several generations to engage and care for our world, which is good. But when it comes to mankind, when it comes to all creation, I have to, we have to give credit where credit is due. That's what we were created for, to reflect God's glory to him. We are a creation created to reflect our creator. That is, that is our purpose. The last five chapters of Psalms are the culmination of this spilling out of emotion, this brutally honest verses that we read, all our hearts pouring out before the Lord in praise of who he is, what he has done and what he is going to do beyond our good times and beyond our bad times. Psalm 145 is the opening to the close of this whole Psalter. And so if you do, would open with me to Psalm 145, we're going to read it together. <clears throat> it says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. I will praise your name forever and ever. Every day I will praise you and extol your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another and they tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works, and I will proclaim your great deeds. And they celebrate your abundant goodness and joyfully sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. All your works praise you, Lord. Your faithful people extol you. They tell of the glory of your kingdom and speak of your might so that all people may know of your mighty acts and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures through all the generations. The Lord is trustworthy in all he promises and faithful in all he does. The Lord upholds all who fall and lifts up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food at the proper time. You open your hand and satisfy the desires of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and faithful in all he does. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desires of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them. The Lord watches over all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every creature praise his holy name. David begins this psalm declaring who is in charge, who he and the rest of creation answer to by this opening phrase by saying, stating, my God, the king. And this name, the king, also makes us understand what that signifies, uh, what a good king is, a king that has a covenant fidelity, a God who is faithful to his promises and loyal to his people. Before this, we read through all the bad kings of Israel before we get to David. And yes, there's kings later that aren't great. And even David himself has his faults. But a bad king is not loyal to his people. He's out for his own selfish gain and ambition. But this God stays loyal to his people and fulfills his promises. A good king and a good creator. 
And the repeated phrase that follows that, every day, forever, and ever, is David emphasizing to the people of Israel and all creation to do the same, to act on that praise, that every day for their entire life to praise God. And this is a common emphasis that we read throughout Scripture, and especially in the Psalms, when it says, praise God. Now, this, he, this is a Hebrew phrase, praise God, and we're really familiar with this, especially in our songs, but hallelujah. And it's actually two words put together, hallelujah, hallu meaning to praise, and yah is a shortening of Yahweh, God. Now, we use that in our Christian culture as more of a form of joyful praise and adoration, whereas in Jewish culture, they use that as more of an injunction to praise, a directive it's an imperative statement more than a declarative statement. And, and I find that, at, at least myself, I use it more as just kind of declarative. And even, even flippantly, you know, we talked about this um, at some length with our small group this past week as we were reading Psalm 145, and realized how often we use that, how often I use that phrase uh, for just simple things, I mean, I think about last week, last weekend, it was super hot. I don't know if any of you were in Cooper Landing. I think it hit almost 84 degrees. It was super sunny outside. I mean, it was a great weekend. We all went camping. It was super fun. And, of course, what exudes from, from us or from myself is, oh, praise God. Thank God it's finally hot outside. Or thank God we finally have sun or whatever. You know, just kind of just tossing it around. But... When I'm using the phrase like that, when I say praise God at the end of a hope or an expectation or the result of something good, what am I conveying? Like now I'm able to praise God because something good has happened? You know, what weight does that praise carry in reality when I use it like that? It's not... It's not coming to God in reverence and declaring others to do the same. It's just kind of sounding like I'm a fair-weather Christian and just I'm going to say praise God or thank God or thank the Lord. I'm not praising him every day, forever and ever, regardless what I'm walking up against or what I'm experiencing. You know, in Jewish tradition, um, they take this a little bit further in acting this out more, more fervently. The Talmud encourages them to repeat this psalm three times every day, twice in the morning and once in the evening. Now, I'm no expert in Jewish culture. I know you thought I was, but reciting this passage three times a day definitely wouldn't hurt. It definitely puts our heart in a place that puts us second and God first, no matter what the day brings. And then when we use that phrase, we're using it as a way to direct others to also respond in the same way. Now David sees God's greatness in the midst of it all and is proclaiming that the generations are going to declare his works to the next generations. This is a guy who's experienced a lot. We, we read his up and downs of emotion constantly throughout the Psalms and before in Samuel. But here he bears his soul and then says that it, everyone is going to experience your great works. And I don't think David realizes the kind of fulfillment that these words end up bringing as we continue to read further into the New Testament. And we see what a perfect king does for his creation with God sending his son to give his life up for us. 
And even now, he is still working. As David, Derek Kidner writes, he says, the gospel events brought a new climax to his mighty works and is still moving towards their consummation. I repeatedly uh, will tell the youth um, that we're still in Bible times today. Like, it's not over yet. We're still waiting for God's promises to be fulfilled. We're still waiting for that faithful, loyal king to complete the work that he has started. We're waiting in anticipation and in the midst of that, still praising him for the things that he has done and is doing. The impact of David's words speak true to us today. And in the meantime, he tells us to meditate and commend God's splendor, his works, his goodness, and his righteousness. And I want you to remember that last portion of righteousness in verse 7 as we move on because this perfect creator is going to set all things straight again and he will do so because he is a compassionate God slow to anger and rich in love we read this phrase for the first time way back in Exodus 34 and this is where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and God says I'm going to reveal myself to you and he gives this description of himself directly to Moses of who he is, what kind of a God he is. And I can't imagine what awe-inspiring experience that must have been, but the words that he gives, the words that he shares, are just as impactful as I'm sure that moment was if we really spend time to work over and through them. A gracious and compassionate God I'm not sure if you guys were here for Ross's sermon last week. Excuse me. But Psalm 58 sure doesn't seem like a prayer a compassionate God would answer. An imprecatory psalm praying, uh, praying I mean, justice on the evildoers, right? To bathe in the blood of your enemies. That's intense. Or Psalm 88 the week before when Justin preached, talking about God... Who, a God who would put someone in the deepest pit, cause all your friends to shun you, and make the darkness your closest friend. But in verse 9, he says that the Lord is good to all. And now remember that we are praising God for his righteousness, as we just read in verse 7. His righteous character as much as his graciousness. And he's going to set all things right. No one will be let off the hook. He follows his description of himself in, in uh, Exodus 34 when he states, the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. That is a long time. A good, gracious, loving, and righteous God has to punish evil. He is a God of justice. A holy God. And this is the righteous thing to do. And we praise him for this. And that is a difficult thing to wrestle with. Because we are in that category that deserves that punishment and justice. And this, when he talks about the, the mighty works to come, when we see what happens in the New Testament and how we can be justified through Christ, 
this beautiful picture, this beautiful gift of sacrifice, this compassionate and gracious God gives an extra new meaning beyond what he himself had already experienced. Now, I also want to clarify, right, that because of that, we still have redemption. We still have hope, even though we deserve less than. And the prophet Jonah actually makes this verse 9 stand out all the more when he's throwing a pity party to God, complaining about he didn't destroy the people of Nineveh. And he's getting all upset, and he's like, I, I, knew, I knew that you were going to do this. I, this is why I didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. I didn't want you to show your compassion and your graciousness. He's, he's saying it like super condescendingly. He's like, uh, I, I knew you were going to do this, but no, you know, you're a compassionate, gracious God, slow to anger. Just let me die. I'm sick of it. I, I don't want to watch you show mercy on these people. I, I, and, <laughs> and we read that, and we're like, what is his problem? God decides not to destroy them. And I honestly wonder who needed more grace and compassion in that situation. Nineveh or Jonah? Because I would say considering the pity party he was throwing, lightning might strike right there. This is a good God who shows more mercy and compassion and graciousness than we ourselves could ever bestow upon others. And doesn't that make you want to scream amen? Amen? Amen. Good, I'm glad Justin and Ross heard that. I got to get an amen out of of you guys. God is good to all, it says, whether it be in righteous anger or in forgiveness. (coughs) The creator is not desiring to destroy his creation. The things that he created, he desires to bring them to himself. That was the beginning when he called the people of Israel. He's like, I'm wanting to bring you to myself. Take refuge in me. Find rest in me. But often we decide to turn our hearts and our minds away. But the rest of creation sees this truth. In verse 10, it follows up by saying, all your works praise you. And all your works is the same Hebrew phrase in verse 9b just before all that he has made. And Kidner again helps us clarify this a bit more by saying, perhaps declare him would be truer than give thanks or give praise, since only man can show true or know true gratitude, while the rest of God's creation proclaim him by what they are. And they will do so perfectly in the end, as Romans 8.21 tells us later, which we just read two weeks ago in regard to Psalm 88. All creation groans, Romans says, as they wait for God's perfect and everlasting kingdom to redeem them. Now, Romans is focusing more on redemption when regarding God's kingdom, where David is focusing more on God's rule in regards to his kingdom. And his rule is eternal. And this this passage here is is echoed later in Daniel 4, where we see King Nebuchadnezzar actually reference this. He he utters these words of truth, declaring God's sovereign rule over all things forever. And even a man, (coughs) excuse me, who was considered at the time to be the... uh, 
to be the, the greatest enemy of Israel up to their, that point in their history, was able to recognize truth and was able to proclaim that truth and yet still adamantly oppose God. And, uh, you know, I can't help but kind of think of some similarities of the people around the world who will kind of roll their eyes a little bit, but they'll go ahead and admit that it's pronounced Reese's, not Reese's. You know, they know the truth, but they still decide to stick with Reese's. You know, I had to get that plug in there. I finally have a stage of people to make that clear. Um, but we know the truth in our hearts, and even if we do decide to, to proclaim it, we can still harden our hearts from that truth and turn away. As we move into this last half of Psalm 145, David expresses God's provision to his creation in multiple ways. In 14, lifting up those who are inadequate. 15 and 16, satisfying our hunger pains and our needs, which again points us to look forward to Matthew 5 through 6 during Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and that he tells us not to worry about what we will wear or what we will eat, that God provides for the birds of the air everything that they need, and we... And are we not more valuable than those birds? And in 18 and 19, God does declare his provision. But there are some stipulations. We, we have to take some steps towards him if we want to take refuge in him. His hand is open, every, his hand is open with everything that satisfies, satisfies us, everything that we need. But we need to take the steps Towards him, And so he, he states clearly, the Lord is near to all who call on him, who call on him in truth. Now, what does that look like? And that's an excellent question. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but if we point our nose back into the Psalms again, if we look a little bit further back to Psalm 138, we see, we see it say, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. And the way in which I understand this reference of someone who is not calling upon God in truth is someone not really seeking God with their whole heart, rather calling upon him when it suits them or when it's convenient or maybe saying things like, praise God, it's Sunday, you know, just kind of throwing it out there. And I, I do that a lot. And, and it really convicted me as we kind of worked through this declaration of praising God, this, this imperative statement to praise God, that I'm not letting it have, I'm not giving it the weight that it deserves or giving it the instruction that it's telling us to do. Just kind of tossing it out there, making it convenient for me or, or making it seem to even those around me that, oh, he's just happy when things are going well. He is a God on their terms rather than declaring my God the king in verse 1 as David states it, and instructing others to do the same. And verse 19 similarly states that he will fulfill the desires of those who fear him, who recognize that he is the God who is in control and has the power to lift up and the power to destroy. And Isaiah 55 gives us a beautiful picture of God's compassion for his creation, and it's, it's too fitting not to read, so we're going to read it together. It says, "'Come, all you who are thirsty.'" Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. 
Why spend money on what is not bread? And you labor on what does not satisfy. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and you will delight in the riches of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you. My faithful love promised to David. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a ruler and commander of the peoples. Surely you will summon nations you know not, like Nineveh, and nations you do not know will come running to you because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has endowed you with splendor. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. That's a warning, like a sense of urgency. Do it now, quickly. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord and he will have mercy on them and to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty to me, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. You will go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and hills will burst into song before you, and all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush will grow the juniper, and instead of the briars, the myrtle will grow. This will be for the Lord's renown, for an everlasting sign that will endure forever. This is the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding with much love. As he speaks things into existence, they will not return to him empty. They will return to him in praise and declaration whether it be the rocks, the trees, or all of creation in the end, it will declare the Lord's renown. That's what its purpose was. That's what our purpose is. And in doing so, in doing this, the Lord protects us. <clears throat> and David adds this line about our king, that the Lord watches over all those who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And notice that those who receive God's protection are the people who love him. This is a clear characteristic of a Christian. When talking about God guarding his people by his power, 1 Peter 1 states that though we have not seen him, we love him. Those who love the King Jesus belong to him forever. Jesus will protect, guard, and preserve and sustain them until the God of all grace brings them into his eternal kingdom, 1 Peter 5 tells us. This doesn't mean his people have an easy life. We are told that clearly in Luke 21, that everyone is going to hate us because of God, but that not a hair on our head will be harmed. Jesus called us to stand firm, and he will protect us. He will give us refuge. That is a repeated phrase throughout the Psalms, that he, to, to seek refuge in God. And as we stated before, that was the whole beginning promise, that he, the covenant that he made to the people of Israel. But he said, I will, I, will, I will bring you to myself, and you will find rest in me. That, I mean, we see that echoed again later in Hebrews. That he's, he's calling us to him. 
He's like, take refuge in me. Find rest in me. In me you will find solace. And oftentimes that didn't happen. The wicked shares no assurance of this. All who fail to submit to the king in repentance and faith will perish. And this wouldn't be a psalm of David without having this little caveat about the wicked. And oh, just in case you forgot, the wicked, they're going to die. You're not going to be welcomed into God's rest because I can't be with anything that's unholy. And I don't want to separate you from me, but I have to. But my hand is outstretched. Everything that you need, everything that you desire, I have for you because I designed your desires. I designed your hearts and minds. And I can fulfill it. I am the perfect creator. Where things didn't just fall perfectly into place, as Attenborough put it. They were put into place by a perfect God. And we chose to turn from him. Therefore, it's asking us, it's telling us to look to our king. He saves sinners from the wrath to come, and he graciously attends to the needs of all who look on him. Martin Luther refers to Psalm 145 as this. He says, Christ is the king of the poor, the afflicted, and the fallen. And this is true. Verse 14 said that he will lift up those who are bowed down and uphold the fallen. To enter into a saving and satisfying relationship with God, all you need is need. And that's difficult for us to admit that we need something outside of ourselves because more often than not, we put ourselves as our own God. Our, our pride is what we're standing on. We are the kings and rulers of the earth that he is constantly warning throughout Scripture to let go of your pride. Seek me, you kings and rulers of the earth. That's us, because he's the one who gave us dominion and rule over the earth. It's not talking about someone else that's above you in authority. That's, that's me. That's you. To recognize that you are not and cannot be your own God, and we have a really hard time doing that. We want to live life apart from Jesus. But those who admit their need find their rest for their souls. Not only rest in this life, but eternal rest in the kingdom to come. The Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God. And maybe it's not blatant disregard for God. Maybe it's, it's not just, you know, shoving your feet in the dirt and screaming and yelling. Maybe you feel too afflicted to cry out for help, or too sinful, or too poor. And think again, because I would venture to say that you are an excellent candidate for the king's grace. He is a gracious and compassionate God who even gave grace to the cows in Nineveh. That was the last verse of that book. <laughs> the psalmist concludes with the only logical response to God's goodness and greatness, to his sovereignty and sustaining grace. And he writes that my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord and let every creature praise his holy name forever and ever. Kidner says that this note of praise is wide as mankind and as unfading as eternity. 
And because of that, David ends this psalm repeating what he said back in the very beginning of Psalm 145 with a commitment to praise the Lord forever and ever. He has given us this entire Hebrew alphabet. This, this, so this psalm is an acrostic. Every letter of the Hebrew alphabet is, is, is shown in these verses. Multiple reasons, and I'm sure you could share more. He's got a whole book about it on how and why we praise the Lord. And so he's asking us, he's telling us, he's beckoning us to join in this praise. It is a directive to praise the king, the perfect creator of all things, who created us to do just that. That is our purpose. Whose hand is over all things and whose goodness is abundant and greatness is unsearchable. And even as much as we hear these words, and even as much as we can look at creation, speak for itself God's glory, we can close our hearts and our minds to it. it it's as easy as that. I mean, we can, we can decide to read through the Bible and shut our hearts down and not let it change us. We've seen that happen in, in, in our own lives as well as others. If we don't decide, we recognize that we need a perfect God. We're not going to accept him. But it is powerful to read David's words just bellowing God's praises. And there is clear evidence of that. It wasn't just perfectly fallen into place. It was put into place. And there is still a culmination to come. Would you pray with me? Father, we praise you because you are a good king. A king that is loyal to us, a king that does not abandon us, but a king that is righteous and also bestows justice on the world. And you also bestow compassion and graciousness to us even when we don't deserve it. So, Father, we just want to praise you for your holiness and praise you for your mercy. And we ask, Father, whether it be three times a day or once a day or every now and again in our lives, that we come back to recognizing who our Creator is and what we were made for, that we recognize you as our good Father that we don't become complacent and we don't procrastinate to take these steps towards you. You have, you have given us a sense of urgency to not wait, but to come near to you, to take refuge in you. And we thank you, Father, for constantly reminding us to do these things because it is a daily walk that we have to do, that you've instructed us to do. So we just praise you, Father, and thank you for all your good gifts that you've given us. In your name we pray, amen.